This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Great song, Nothing Like Time. Great William Penn, many, many years ago, who helped founded the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, once said time is what we want most, but what we use worst. That's the dilemma for many of us these days as we try and balance competing demands between work, family, finances, and taking care of ourselves. Technology has only added more stress to how we divide our time. So given that we have a set amount of hours in the day and days in the week, how can we find a way to make the best decisions to accomplish our goals and lead happy and satisfying lives? A new book takes a look at these issues. It's titled Spending Time, the Most Valuable Resource. Daniel Hammermesh is the author. He's a a distinguished scholar at Barnard College and as well, Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin. And a pleasure to have him joining us in studio. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I I mean, when you look at today's society, there are so many different elements that are in play right now that would have people wondering how we spend our time and whether or not we probably spend it wisely enough. I don't think people think enough about how they spend time. They go through motions. They feel more and more rushed. And ideally, I'd like people to sit back and think about what they're doing. Maybe it would make them feel happier and a little bit less stressed for time. So what was it that that really drew you to do a book like this? I've been thinking about time since I was four years old. Yeah, okay. My my mom got me a watch, analog, of course, in 1947. They didn't have digitals then. And I've been fascinated by time ever since. I worry about it a lot. Why so? Pure neuroses. (laughs) In your personal life, professional life, or a combination of both? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) All of the above. Uh, Right now, though, when you think about the, the, the thought process around time, I would think with all the data that is out there, it's probably, uh, is it easier now to kind of understand why we do certain things surrounding our time and our and and our lives in comparison to maybe 30 or 40 years ago? I think it's more understandable for two reasons. First of all, it's only in the last 20 years that the U.S. has had very good data about how people spend their time. The government started collecting a thousand diaries. So you sit down tomorrow morning, fill out every, what you're doing every minute of today. We've been getting a 1,000 of those every month since 2003. So there's a lot more data, a lot more stuff to look at on it. The second thing is economists have thought about it much more. Only in 1965 did they really start thinking. And only because of these data, which I use in this book at great length, have people been able to analyze what people do with the time and test their ideas on it. And you correlate uh, scarcity as one of these issues, uh, especially between economic factors and and obviously what you're talking about in terms of uh, spending our time wisely. Time is an economic factor. Economics is about scarcity more than anything else. And increasingly, because our incomes keep on going up, they have for the last 50 years, whereas time doesn't go up very much, time is the increasingly important scarce factor. And that's especially true for rich people who have a lot of money, but really no more time than poor people do. So how do you distinguish the the use of time, and we'll start here in the U.S., between the people that are the rich, and the people who are not. It's amazing in this regard. The rich, of course, work more than others. They should. There's a bigger incentive to work more. But even if they don't work, they use their time differently. Rich person does much less TV watching, over an hour a day less than a poor person. Sleeps less also. Sleep is not biologically given. It responds to incentives. They sleep less. They watch a lot less TV. They do more museum going more theater. Anything that takes money 
the rich will do more of. Things that take a lot of time and little money, rich do less of. That's true here. It's true in France, which I looked at, and true elsewhere as well. Right. So how do you? How, how does then how we approach the use of time here in the United States vary from what you see in other countries around the world? The only major difference is that Americans are the champions of work among rich countries. We work on average eight hours more per week in the typical week than Germans do, six hours more than the French do. Right. We are just – and it used to be quite a bit different. Forty years ago, we worked about average for rich countries. Today, even the Japanese work less than we do. The reason is very simple. We take very short vacations if we take any. Other countries get four, five, six weeks. That's the major difference. So, and we're talking with Daniel Hammermesh, who's the author of the book Spending Time, the most valuable resource here on Sirius XM 132. Then I would find it interesting that if, if other countries are working less than we are, how is their pay in comparison to what we see here in the United States? Is it level or is there a significant difference on the negative? Slightly different and negative. Germany isn't quite as well off as we are. France isn't. Japan isn't. But take Norway, where they also get four or five weeks of vacation. They're better off than we are. Yes, if we worked less, we'd have to give up a little bit, but not very much. It's a choice like anything else. Sit back and think about it and decide how you want to spend your time and how you'd like society to put in positions on you to spend your time, which we need to do. That's the whole point of the book. So is there something that we can glean from what the Norwegians do in, in, in terms of that, that, that mixture of, of work time and personal time, but also economic benefit? I don't think we can do it individually. Sure, I can tell you, take it easy, relax, walk to work instead of racing for an Uber or a taxi. <laughs> right. But you know... If every one of us does this on his own, it's not going to make much of a difference. All these other countries made the decision politically to give people more time off. And until the U.S. does that, which sure isn't going to happen any time in the next few years, until we do it by mandate of vacations, I don't think people are going to feel less rushed. In fact, they're going to feel more rushed as they get more income with no more time. Do you think then, specifically going back here to the United States, that that some of these these mindsets surrounding time and, and how much we work play into the economic gap that we're, we've talked about a lot here in the United States. No question. They exacerbate the gap very simply because there's more incentives for rich people to work more. They work more, less of an incentive for a low-wage person to work. They don't work anymore, and the rich get richer. It's our own behavior responding to incentives that exacerbates both the income gap and the time gap between rich and poor. And it's probably also our, our own kind of mindset and, and our approaches that will have us reach for the phone, the smartphone, at 7 p.m., 8 p.m., 9 p.m. to do business instead of you know having that time off as well. So the technology obviously plays a role here as well. It's ubiquitous, but uh, 7, 8, 9 p.m.? Heck, 4 in the morning, man. Come <laughs> well, on. Yeah, I'm, I'm up at that time as well. Yeah, exactly. But, but I do find it interesting. So what do you think then technology has played as a role in this entire process? I don't think it has changed the amount of time we spend on different things. There's no question technology has made us better off. Think about going to a museum. When I went to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago as a kid, you pull levers, you did a few things. These days, it's all incredibly immersive, great technology. But you can't go to the museum in any less time. Mm -hmm. You can't cut back on sleep. A few things are easier to do quicker because of technology, cooking, washing, I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the semi-automatic washing machine with the ringer. Probably not. No. It's after your time. No. That's what we had initially. A tremendous 
improvements in the things you do with the house, cooking, cleaning, washing, etc. Other than that, the technology has made life better, but it hasn't saved as much time. Right. And what's funny is that I think a lot of people would believe that those were all elements that are designed to save us time. And even if they save us a little bit, there ends up being other factors that kind of play in. And I'm a dad of three with three kids that all play sports. And so any of that extra time is taken up with with their sporting activities. Perhaps that's true. But think of how much more fun you're having because you can spend time with your sporting activities. Whereas beforehand, you would have been working in a factory eight hours a day, five days a week. So we are better off. Right. But it's not we're going to have more time. We're going to have less time because we have more money chasing the same number of hours. Daniel Hammermesh is our guest. He is the author of the book Spending Time, the Most Valuable Resource. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Part of this also in the book, you talk about the differences between men and women and how they respond to the use of time. It's really fascinating. It turns out in the U.S., the question, how do you define work? We work for pay. We also work at home, shopping, cleaning, cooking, walking the dog, yeah. et cetera. Okay? Turns out men and women in the U.S. and other northern European rich countries do about the same amount of total work. There's very little difference. Women work about one hour more per week than men. They do more homework, less work for pay. And yet women are much more bothered by the time stress. In every country I've looked at, of which there's six, women are more bugged by feeling rushed. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating thing. I think the reason is that women are house managers. Think what happens. A kid gets sick. You're going to come into work. I don't know what your spouse does. My spouse would be the one who stayed home when we had little kids, even though she was working also. So I think it's juggling things, doing different things that makes women feel a rush for time. But there's also that component, as you kind of just alluded to a second ago, of the fact that even when we're not in the workplace and we are home, there are elements of what we do at home that are work that obviously add into this as well. It is work. I mean, but nonetheless, people would rather be doing work at home, taking care of a kid. I mean, even reading Goodnight Moon to a kid for the 25th time, I know it's terrible, but I'd rather yeah. do that than if I were to sit in the factory line with a boss, okay? I mean, yeah. dealing with kids is more pleasurable than work for most people. How then does also retirement play into this use of time? Because you try and differentiate that as well. It's sort of interesting. I'm partly retired. I work only 30 hours a week, which at age 75 is a heck of a lot of work for 75-year-olds. It's interesting. People sort of go from age 60 to 75 and mostly stop working. Okay. Those who work will work 30 hours, but not very few do. What do you do with the time when you have more of it? Uh, depressingly enough, you'd hope people would spend time enriching their lives, reading, and so on. Yeah. The biggest sink for time once you retire are two things. Sleep a little bit, and most important of all, TV watching. <laughs> Old people watch a heck of a lot more TV than younger people. Yeah. It's a sad comment. People get more time. An awful lot is used to watch the tube. You know, it's interesting because when we were coming out of the recession a little more than a decade ago, uh, a lot of people started to we, – we would see a lot of stories about people working longer uh, in their careers because they had lost funds, uh, their retirement funds, because of what happened you know, during the, uh, the, the recession. And uh, do you think then it truly is the case that we are working a, a, a longer period of time in our careers? Because as you just alluded to, there are still a lot of people that will work to 72, 73, 74 years of age. Yeah, most of them, however, are pretty well-off people, professionals, okay. doctors, blah, blah, blah. It's also the case that if you look at the aggregate data for the U.S., that the fraction of people over 55 who are working 
certainly hasn't risen in the last 10 years since the recession. Actually, yeah. it's dropped down a little bit, remarkably enough, which I would never have expected. So while we point to anecdotes about people working longer because they, they lost retirement money, it just hasn't happened at all. One of the chapters you have in the book is When We Work. Uh, and, and I find it interesting because, I mean, you can look at days and months and, and all kinds of different scenarios and, and schedules. But one of the unique things here also in the United States has been going on the last few years is the gig economy and how that has kind of impacted when we work. People now having a little bit more of an option, it seems, at times. A little bit. But that's very few people. It's probably a couple of percent, as the evidence suggests, at most. What's most interesting about when we work, you compare America to Western European countries. You go there. It's hard to find a shop open on a Sunday in Western Europe. Here yeah. we're open all the time. Americans work more at night than anybody else. Not just we work more. We work a lot more at night, a lot more in the evenings, and a heck of a lot more on Sundays and Saturdays than people in other rich countries. We're working all the time and more. Is it an expectation as to why we do that? It's a rat race. You know, if I don't work at a time... Sunday, and other people do. I'm not going to get ahead, and therefore I have no incentive to get off that gerbil tube, get out of it, <laughs> and try to behave in a more rational way. Again, it's a wonderful example of what economists call externalities. I do it. You do it. The only way it's going to be solved if somehow some external force, which in the U.S. and other rich countries is the government, imposes a mandate that forces us to behave differently. No so, individual can do it. So how do you think that then all of these issues surrounding spending our time impact our economics? And let's just focus here on the United States for a moment. Impact our economics? I define economics as using scarce resources to maximize our well-being. So no question, these things give us more income than we'd otherwise have. They also make us run around more and make us less happy. And for that reason alone, I think something needs to be done about this. We have to force ourselves as a collective, as a polity, to change our behavior. How do you think we do that, though? Very simple. Pass legislation to do it. Every other rich country did that <laughs> right. between 79 and 2000. I mean, think we think the Japanese are workaholics. They're not workaholics. Compared to us, they work less than we do. Yeah. And yet 40 years ago, they worked a heck of a lot more. They chose to cut back. But it's still the productivity that they have that has to be relatively high to be able to be as effective as they are. Well, it is, but so are we. We're an incredibly rich country. I wish people who were younger realized how well off we are compared yeah. to our, their parents or grandparents. It's just very unfortunate. We want more dollars without thinking are the dollars really going to make us happier. Daniel Hammermesh is our guest. He is the author of the book, Spending Time, the Most Valuable Resource. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So how much of what you see here in the United States in terms of this rat race, are there elements of it that, that play out still in other countries around the world, despite some of the legislative changes that have gone on in those locations? Sure, there are. We find the same difference between rich and poor elsewhere. The rich are working more, watching less TV, feeling more rushed. I looked at both I think Germany, France, and the U.K., and those in the top 25% of incomes felt more pressed, more rushed for time. The reason is very simple. Time is scarce if you have more money. It takes time to spend money. And given that you're going to spend most of your money rather than save it or leave it to the kids, you're going to feel i got to run around, chase around doing things that take my money. 
And Daniel Hammermesh, the author of the book Spending Time, our most the most valuable resource here on Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This idea of scarcity I, I, I find intriguing because of the fact that uh, we are in kind of a rat race each and every day. We are working nine to five, 10 to six, eight to four, whatever it might be. And then we are adding on onto this. So I, I guess with that as kind of a known quantity as what's been in our culture for such a long period of time, are you confident that we can have a what would have to be a significant change in mindset and policy to be able to to acquire some of the benefits that other countries have? I think it's possible, but again, it takes a political will at a time in which it's anathema to even think about raising taxes on anybody. Yeah. It's going to be a heck of a lot of trouble to change the rules that the people are mandated to take four weeks of vacation or to take a few more paid holidays. Other countries have done it. It didn't just happen from the day the countries were born. They chose to do it. It's a political issue, like the most important things in life. Economics feeds into it, but it requires political thought and political judgment. And one of the other interesting things, I, I think, is that at, in many cases, we here in the United States do more complaining about time than, than it, I, I, it feels like than, than than other countries do. That's true. I think complaining is the American national pastime, right, not right. baseball. Right. Okay, but the right. same thing is those who are complaining about the times being scarce are the rich, and you know. People who are poor complain about not having enough money. I'm sympathetic to that. They're right. stuck. The rich, if you want to stop complaining, give up some money. Don't work <laughs> so hard. Walk to work. Sleep more. Take it easy. I have no sympathy for people who say they're too rushed for time. It's their own darn fault. Make donations to, to organizations and, and help other, other people out, right? That, what's one of many things one can do. What do you expect then? To, to, I mean, is this a trend that you believe is going to continue, unfortunately, here in the United States as Ab- we move forward? Absolutely. Well, think about it. What's the biggest economic change in the last two years is the Trump tax cut at the end yeah. of 2017. Yeah. What does that do? That gives more money after taxes to the rich and no more to the lower middle class. What's going to happen is the rich are going to feel more rushed for time because they have no more time but more income in their pocket, spend more time racing around, and will complain more about how scarce time is. So, yes, I see in the next few years an exacerbation of this kind of time divide. Does this also have an impact where businesses are concerned in terms of uh, of the divide that may be between the haves and the have-nots in the business world? Absolutely. I mean, the guys at the top are getting more money in their pocket. They're going to feel more and more they have to race around. The fellow down the line is not going to feel. There'll be just more and more. I think it's an increasing time divide that will in- contribute to an increasing social divide. It's not just income inequality. It's time inequality. Mm-hmm. Which is very depressing. Well, I, and I, but also with the businesses themselves, because when I think of business, especially in the last few years, we've seen a lot of, of acquisitions of companies, of, of the big companies buying the smaller companies. And that obviously has, has an impact on, on this push down the line as well, I think. No question about it. And that, true means that sort of a diffusion of people's attitudes about time becoming, in some sense, more homogeneous because the same few companies are controlling things. You spend – the last thing I wanted to touch on was a chapter in the book you talk about togetherness, Mm -hmm. which is (laughs) – I mean, it's a great topic when you think about who we are with, who we want to spend our time with, how we want to spend our time, and that togetherness and how that is impacted by a lot of these factors. It's really fascinating. I mean, what do we mean by being together? If I'm sleeping in the same bed or room as my wife, are we together? 
Sort of, but we aren't really interacting. Right. It turns out you look at how much time people spend together really doing the same thing, really interacting. It's a couple of hours a day. Most of our time we're running around doing different things with lots of different people, but only a few hours with the same person each day. Great meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you. Great having you with us. Daniel uh, Hammermesh, who is the author of the book, Spending Time, the Most Valuable Resource. Uh, The book is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. Check it out. It's a great look at, uh, at how we spend our time these days. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 